I think that the mental health impacts of climate change have, you know, really been something that's not been considered enough. It's not something people talk about a lot. But when you look at, at some of the essential things that climate change is bringing, particularly around just wilder weather, you know, fiercer floods and, and storms and fires and this kind of thing, almost always that leads to more more damage, more loss of life, more displacement of people. And we know that all those things have mental health impacts. My name is Ziona Eob, and I am the communications officer for ISD's resilience program. It's no surprise that you end up getting anxiety and depression and more and more demand on mental health services. This is the Down to Earth podcast. This podcast is about extraordinary ideas for a better world. And then I think there's the other aspect of, of mental health around climate change, which is just kind of, you know, what some people call it existential fear that surrounds this, or even kind of moral anxiety around what's happening. You know, where, where people are just worried and they're not quite sure how to explain to their kids and they're not sure if they really worry about this at all, um, how they should be behaving and if their behavior is against their views and their, you know, what, what needs to be done. So it all creates a lot of tension. In today's episode, we'll be talking about the impacts of climate change and mental health. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Forum on Climate Change and Mental Health. My name is Joellen Perry, and I am the Adaptation Lead at the International Institute for Sustainable Development. And today's webinar is focused on climate change and mental health. ISD's Resilience Program hosted a research forum on how climate change is impacting the mental health and well-being of uh, Canadians in the prairies. And I listened to the webinar that emerged from the forum, and it just really struck a chord with me. And it had me thinking, this is probably a much wider phenomenon than we know so who are the experts working on this? Who has knowledge to share on this? What are some of the resources that are available? I just feel like these are all valuable insights that people deserve to have access to. And I figured, let's pull something together and share it. So to get things started, I'd like to introduce Katie Hayes, and she will be providing an overview presentation on the linkages between climate change and mental health. So I spoke with Katie Hayes, who's with the Dalalana School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. Katie is also the lead author of the Mental Health and Wellbeing chapter for Canada's National Climate Change and Health Assessment. So what are some of the mental health outcomes? So in the research, we see there's a whole host of mental health outcomes. So some of the things that we see are um, post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, anxiety, and grief. We also see things like suicidal ideation and suicide related to heat waves. 
Um, there's also issues of violence and aggression as resources become scarce, uh, for example, food insecurity or water insecurity. There's also things like survivor guilt or vicarious trauma. Vicarious trauma we've seen in different communities who maybe have not necessarily been exposed to a climate hazard, but they have loved ones who've been experiencing um, such a hazard. Now, when talking about environmental trauma, Katie brought up something really interesting. She talks about something called psychoteratic syndromes. It's often used to describe how psychology can relate to one's environment. I'll let Katie explain. There's also specific environment-related trauma. So some of you may have seen some of these terms before. Um, they are terms that are not official or static, but they're rather they're terms that health practitioners and scholars have generated to describe some of the responses that they've been seeing. So the, the environmental philosopher, Glenn Albrecht, calls these terms psychoteratic syndromes. So basically assessing the psychology as well as um, the relationship with the environment. And so we see things like eco-anxiety, which refers to the anxiety that people can uh, feel by being constantly surrounded by the problems associated with climate change. There's something called eco-paralysis, which refers to the complex feeling of not being able to do anything grand enough to mitigate or stop the climate change problem. Um, the term eco-grief comes to us from Dr. Ashley Consolo and um, Neville Ellis, whose research focus is on Indigenous communities. And eco-grief refers to the distress related to ecological loss or anticipated loss related to climate change. And then, of course, uh, the term solastalgia, which I mentioned before. Basically, um, feeling homesick in your home environment because your home environment has changed so drastically because of climate hazards. Just to backtrack a a little bit on some of the issues that you spoke on. How long can some of these mental health issues, I guess, last, you know, using a natural disaster as a starting point? Sure. Well, so there's a few things uh, to consider. So um, in my research in High River, I looked at the long-term effects of the 2013 Southern Alberta flood that, that struck High River, Alberta particularly hard. And so I conducted my research in 2018, so that would have been five years later. And there were um, still self-reports of uh, things like anxiety every time it rains, post-traumatic stress disorder, um, um, socioeconomic issues that um, are very, very traumatic for folks, and family breakdowns as well. So in, in my research, that's been a significant focus, is really looking at the long-term effects. There's no magic number, however, because we really need to consider that the mental health effects of an extreme event like a flood or a hurricane or drought or wildfire, those impacts occur within the so social determinants of health. And so what that really is basically saying is that um, we all come to the table with all of these other social, biological, cultural, environmental factors that are compounded by an extreme event like a flood or a hurricane or a wildfire, for example. So, you know, those who have low socioeconomic status, who have pre-existing mental health or physical health issues, um, people who are racialized in society, the effects of a flood or an extreme event are going to be compounding those uh, other determinants. And so really um, what we're seeing is that it can compound trauma. 
right? So um, there's no magic number of time frame of how long um, someone's going to experience the mental health effects because they're often compounded by other life experiences. And it's really important to consider those things, especially when we're talking about a climate-related extreme event, because we're so focused on providing um, response. So emergency response goes in, we get shelter and food and family reunification. But then two to three years later, when funding has dried up or when those resources are sent to another location, that's really difficult because communities are still reeling. And so there needs to be a more significant focus, not only on response, which is is very much needed, but on recovery. And recovery can take a lifetime. Katie has come across a broad range of solutions to address the impacts of climate change and mental health. Some examples include mental health guidance during climate emergencies, uh, psychological first aid, or even land-based healing, which has been traditionally practiced by many Indigenous communities. Things like forest bathing, which is a common practice in Japan amongst folks who are dealing with different um, stressors and trauma, Um, not necessarily just specific to climate change, but that connection with nature. So bathing in the forest, really taking time to spend time in nature and appreciate nature, that can also enhance uh, our well-being, but also enhance our responsibility to, to care for and be stewards of the environment. So that's one, you know, one way where people can, you know, get outside more and get in touch with nature, whether it's gardening, whether it's taking walks outside or what have you, those are those are kind of, I think, one of the most accessible ways for anybody to um, explore some of these responses that they're having. One innovative approach to addressing climate change and mental health comes from the New York University Environmental Health Clinic. The clinic takes patients who are often frustrated with the lack of progress on climate change. What the environmental health clinic does is they accept impatience. So it's people who are impatiently waiting for legislative change on climate change. And they're prescribed with actions for environmental action. So it's really addressing that problem-focused coping. I wanted to also just briefly touch on an interesting approach in High River. So following the 2013 flood, the municipality created the Safe Spot Initiative to help build citizen capacity to support mental health. And what this initiative does is it trains businesses and agencies in psychological first aid. So businesses around the community, for example, your local hairdresser or coffee shop, um, people will receive training in psychological first aid. And then they're post a large orange dot on their establishment window. And this orange dot is to let community members know that this place of business is a safe spot to talk about their mental health. And the objectives of this program are is that any door is the right door to seek mental health care in the community. Earlier today, I was following up with Laurie Braverock, who was also on the webinar with you. And we were just talking a little bit about climate change and mental health in her community and this sort of overlap with colonialism and this feeling mm-hmm. of loss of land a second time over, and it can be really triggering. Yeah. Um, how does that sort of fit into, you know, the eco-anxiety and the solastalgia topics that you mentioned earlier? Yeah, well, I, I think, um, again, those who are on the front lines of this issue are those who have close ties with the land and, and a connection with the land. So in particular, Indigenous peoples in Canada, they are on the front lines of climate change. And they also, as I mentioned before, is that when we ha- we're looking at the issue of climate change, we have to consider the issue in the broader 
social, cultural, uh, environmental, and biological determinants of health. And so things like experiencing colonialism and racism and marginalization, those are compounding effects that continue to be triggered by climate change. So as you mentioned, that loss of a sense of place, again, is um, very triggering for folks. And so we need to consider who's on the front line and what can we learn from those who are on the front line and what are their needs and what's the best way to support? Because I think that it's it's also important to consider that we, we need to build that capacity to cope and we need to use um, local and traditional knowledges to strengthen that. It's very interesting. I, you know, this whole topic of ecological grief came onto my radar last year. I also wanted to learn more about ecological grief from Indigenous perspectives. I was asked to speak on the subject. And when these ladies got up and they presented and I was, you know, I was telling my husband, I said, you know, it's so strange that ecological grief that they're experiencing are still our places. It's almost like we're losing all of this all over again. I spoke with Misamaki Laurie Braverock, who's a member of the Kainai Blood Tribe, and Amskapi Pikani Blackfeet Tribe. We've already experienced the loss of our land through colonization, and now um, non-natives have gotten to know these areas that we've been forced out of, and now they're seeing these changes from climate change and now they're grieving for these places that we've already grieved for we've already lost them once before and now we're losing them all over again Lori spoke about her experience growing up in the bullhorn coulee a blood tribe reserve in alberta about three hours south of calgary we had the beavers. I still have a memory of one being really large. And me and my cousin were fishing one time and this huge beaver came up and it scared us. You know, we were like, I mean, it's right there. Well, we'll we'll move. And so we walked away. And you know, now I I I have not seen a beaver that large, you know, that size again. But the waters we don't have the way we used to either. So the water was deeper. Today, I mean, it's up to your ankles. You know, where before, like what, I, what I'm describing is, you know, waters that are 8 to 10 feet deep, 12 feet in some places and deeper, you know, where the water is remaining now. So to go from that to where you could just walk across literally anywhere now, um, it, it's changed drastically. She also shared some of the impacts that her community is facing. So if I want to go swimming, I can't go to Bullhorn. So you, we have to drive to St. Mary's Reservoir or to one of the reservoirs to actually be in deep water deep enough to swim in. And then, you know, um, to go fishing, the fish aren't there anymore. So now we have to drive to the deeper waters to go fishing so now we're doing those things that we never had to do before. You know, we would just walk down the hill and everything was there. So now if I want to go pick mint or if I want to go pick any of the plants that we're looking at, like I have to drive about 20 minutes to a half an hour from my house. So bullhorn now, like everything is very sparse. Like I don't really know that there are fish. The frogs are probably still there. I, I've can't recall the last time I've seen a beaver down there. 
you know, without the water there, there really isn't much life there anymore. And then even, you know, I, I look at, uh, you know, where we're heading, the glaciers, um, they're disappearing. And with their disappearance, they're noticing that the actual Bow River in Calgary is like the levels are dropping. And they're saying, like, what are we going to do when the glaciers are completely gone? Because that's the main source. Well, that's the same source here, right? Our headwaters are basically coming from the glaciers. And, you know, with that decline of the glaciers, and we're already seeing a decline in bullhorn just because most of that is going to um, agriculture and through the canal system. Just with the changes that we've seen from when I was a kid till now, I told her, what is it going to look like in another 20, 30 years, you know, especially when the glaciers are not there anymore? You know, are we going to have any kind of water coming through there at all? I'm trying to prepare myself for that day when, you know, there may not be any water going through Bullhorn. And I'm trying to prepare for that because if nobody's taking any action on this, then we're really not going to see any improvement there you know so um for me i i would say it's a fairly drastic change from what i recall when i was a mm -hmm. child it was a lot more life laurie speaks about a number of different sort of impacts of climate change and mental health and how scholars have looked at it and she also has done some research on what are some of the solutions that have been investigated as well and so looking to other communities to see what has been done and what is being done I think um, what I've been saying from the beginning and, and, and why we're so keen on this topic with our lands is that that's really the only way we're ever going to heal. The more time we spend on the land doing our cultural activities, the buffalo harvest, picking, going out, picking berries, going out, picking mint. Um, it's our culture, our, our cultural activities and going back to the land, spending time on the land and you know, healing ourselves, but also learning how to heal the land. That to me is, I think, the, the best thing for anyone's mental health is to just spend time outdoors. So just hearing Lori Brave Rock kind of bring something that has been probably felt by many communities for a very long time and bringing it forward in a way that I don't want to say legitimized because it's always been legitimate, but like she's bringing forth the evidence that's been there for a while in a consolidated fashion. I really have to, uh, you know, acknowledge our ancestors, those who came before us because, you know, they were seeing a whole loss of their uh, way of life. They could not live in teepees anymore. They had to live in a house. They could not have their horses anymore. They were taken away. You know, we had to have a pass just to leave the reserve. We, I mean, everything that they've experienced. And, you know, and I was telling my husband, I told him, you know, even in that time that they were experiencing such a great loss, they still had forethought in thinking about those of us that were coming, the next generations. And that's where I want to be, I guess. You know, if I if I have a an ending message to all of this is that if they had hope for us in light of losing their entire way of life, everything changed for them, but they still had hope for us and they still thought about us. 
in the face of climate change, it is something so unknown. We don't know. We've, we've never experienced what we're experiencing right now in the, in the history of the world, right? And so even for what our ancestors were facing, I, I feel like we're, we're facing just as big of a, a change that is coming and what we're already experiencing, the changes of climate change now. And I told them, and if they didn't give up hope, well, then I don't think we can give up hope either. Then, you know, hope that finding solutions and partnerships and, and working with others that, you know, that we're going to find a way to, to deal with climate change. Well, I think Indigenous communities often have a very long history of dealing with, with crises of various kinds, and, and um, there are traditional ways of, of coping and, and uh, helping people that are in trouble and helping communities recover, and there's a lot to learn from that. Lori Goring is the climate editor with the Thomson Reuters Foundation's news website. She shared some reflections with me about her experience reporting in Fiji where climate change has been affecting people's mental health significantly. Well, it was very interesting. When I talked to people when I was there um, in the Red Cross and other groups, they said, you know, Fijians are these very, um, people very good at bouncing back from things. You know, they've always had some uh, storms move through. They're used to it. They have a very positive kind of attitude and they're, they're quick to just sort of shrug things off and move on. But this big cyclone that came through, uh, Cyclone Winston, was was so much bigger than anything people had seen before that that all their coping strategies suddenly weren't working anymore. I mean, just to start with, the family that I was writing about, uh, when they heard the storm was coming, they all did what they would traditionally have done, which is moved out of their wooden houses and they all went to the concrete house in town that was furthest up from the sea and they waited in there and, and you know, knew that would be fine because that would stand up. Well, this time the storm was so big it didn't stand up and knocked down the concrete house and they ended up out in the water, you know, just barely surviving this thing. And then the next part of the coping strategy is that normally when a cyclone came through, it would have knocked out a you know, some of the houses are maybe, you know, a quarter, a third of the houses even. But there would be enough place that everybody on the island could just move in with neighbors or relatives until they got rebuilt. And that would be fine. And this time, so many houses came down that there wasn't room for people to do that. And they were forced to leave the island and try to go stay with other people. So suddenly that sort of neighborhood community coping strategy of people pulling together starts to break down because People are forced to leave. I think what struck me was that it is common and it can impact the whole family. And and there were really interesting mental stresses too. Things like that often the people on this island of Koro were, they were the rich ones. They were the ones that were growing crops and, and sending money back to the people in town that were often in university or living, you know, doing something there. And suddenly the whole thing was reversed. The people that had the money and the power and the kind of prestige and the community and the family were the paupers showing up at the door of their relatives in town and asking to be taken in for a while. And people were happy to do that, but you know how it is. I mean, imagine, imagine having any of your relatives come and stay for months and months at a time 
in your house. You know, no matter how much you love them and care for them and feel the spirit, there's going to be a bit of an irritation. There's going to be a bit of a uh, pressure. Perhaps if there's awareness of the prevalence and how rampant this is, that might result in an uptick in services. So I think if people don't feel so isolated in their experience in managing this grief, perhaps that could lead to more support. The Red Cross there is very interesting to me. They, The Red Cross is really good at delivering food and shelter and so on after a disaster. I mean, they do that. They've done that for a long time. They do that well. They know exactly how to do it. But what they were really seeing in some of these big disasters was that that just wasn't enough anymore. That if you didn't deal with the mental health issues that were happening, it didn't matter how much of the other stuff you delivered. And that also that if you didn't deal with those mental health issues, it was something that was going to fester and it was going to show up later, those kind of stresses that had never been dealt with and in all sorts of nasty ways from, you know, domestic violence to substance abuse to things like that. And so it's really important to to begin thinking about those and, and talking about that early on. They were talking about really simple things too, like just warning parents, you know, you're your kids are going to be scared when they hear thunder and wind and storms, and they're going to come and jump into your bed at night, or they're going to say, I don't want to go to school. And they said, look, you know, you're going to have to be sympathetic and understand where this is coming from, you know, and, 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 and deal with that in order to help them and not just dismiss it. One thing that's really important as we see more and more of these disasters, and I mean all over the place, and this displacement of people and these losses that they're suffering are going to create stress and anxiety and pressures on people, and they're going to create growing demand on mental health services. I love to see things be proactive, and I think it's important that all of the structures that are put in place to deal with these begin to have a mental health aspect, to, to you know, really begin to take into account that these demands are going to be there and these problems are going to be there, and it's not going to be enough to do relief the way that we always did it before. I would say that mental health and climate change shouldn't be minimized. And I think that's what really stands out to me, whether it was Lori Braverock or Lori Gehring. And we're looking at two different sets of examples of people dealing with experiences, some of which are drastic, but some of them are just as impactful because they chip away at your nostalgia and your memories and how you sort of live traditionally and it's a lot and it's a lot to process so I would say my biggest takeaway would be that no matter how big or how small the impact can be just as intense I'm actually hoping that people realize that these mental health impacts are not isolated experiences and they are a lot more prevalent in a lot more communities around the world whether you're dealing with a hurricane or whether you're dealing with 
overall climate change impacts that are just slowly changing the uh, the land that you live on and the land that you work on or perhaps the waters that you fish from so in a weird way I'm actually hoping that this brings people together and not feeling alone and realizing that they actually do have a lot more in common and that they don't need to fight this on their own Thanks for listening to Down to Earth, a podcast from the International Institute for Sustainable Development. IISD is an independent think tank that delivers the knowledge to act. Through research, science, and analysis, we tackle the root causes of some of the greatest challenges facing our planet today. Find out more at www.iisd.org. This episode was created by Ziona Eob and inspired by a forum on climate change and mental health, organized by the Prairies Regional Adaptation Collaborative. Special thanks to Katie Hayes, Lori Gehring, and Lori Braverock. Thanks also to Joellen Perry and Cameron Hunter. Down to Earth is produced, edited, and mixed by Carmen Clausen. Find more episodes at iisd.org podcast. If you have questions about what you just heard, other thoughts about this episode or ideas for a future episode, tweet us at IISD underscore news.